Well, I'll just as far as banjo music being beautiful, I'll just say I'll appeal to authority. Dave Rawlings, one of the greatest musicians living right now, I went to see him at a concert once, and, and he said he was tuning his banjo, or somebody was tuning a banjo, and he, he said, well, I don't really know if you can tune a banjo. He just kind of makes it sound more banjo-y. So I don't know if the, the banjo is particularly a, a beautiful instrument. It has beauty, certainly, to it, um, but it's it's not a... No, it's not a fluid beautiful. grace or it's beauty. A, it's a superior. No, like in the hierarchy, of, in the Dionysian hierarchy of being, the banjo ranks very high as a distributing uh, instrument of beauty. Maybe in the same uh, sense no, that you might say that, like a harsh bourbon is beautiful. The sound of a banjo is also beautiful. Now I got a little fever, and I can't breathe right. In the day or at midnight, I shake with that cold fright. Even if I die tonight, still gonna be alright. I'm gonna see the light, and it's gonna be fine all down the line. That's the fire and the glory of the one true story. Every second, every hour, from the start of the day to the end of time, it sustains my soul. You're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. As always, I'm your host, Jennifer Frey. I'm an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina, and I'm also a faculty fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. I'm excited to release this episode because it's the first after a bit of a summer break, and it's also the start of an exciting new season for the podcast. It's season five for anyone who's counting. But before I get to the episode, I want to make some general announcements about the podcast because some things have changed. First, we have a beautiful new website, which you can find at www.sacredandprofanelove.com. On the website, you'll find an archive of all our past episodes and guests, and also a blog where we post news related to what we're up to. There's a new blog post now that outlines some of the things we have coming up for this season, including a live recording of the podcast with Dana Joya on Baudelaire, and that's going to be taking place at the Catholic Imagination Conference at the University of Dallas. Um, and that is at the end of September. For more information on the conference, please go to udallas.edu slash centers slash Cowan slash CIC. I have also finally revamped the podcast Patreon page, and I now have a whole bunch of gifts and benefits for my patrons, including free digital subscriptions to either the Lamp or the Point magazines for those who support the podcast at $10 per month. You can check out all of these benefits at patreon.com slash eudaimoniapod. And of course, I am so excited to partner with my friends at The Lamp and at The Point and so grateful to them for supporting the work of this podcast. If you are unfamiliar with these publications, let me tell you something about them because you should definitely subscribe to them. The Lamp is a bi-monthly, lay-edited journal of Catholic letters that brings readers a perspective that is not offered by any other generally circulated magazine in the English-speaking world, namely that of consistent Catholic orthodoxy. The Lamp is a magazine in the old-fashioned sense. Witty, urbane, not pompous or shrill, full of serious reporting, insightful opinions, squibs, oblique parodies, and arts coverage— that draws attention to those things that are true, good, and beautiful, whether they belong formally to the church or not. And The Point Magazine is a print and digital magazine of philosophical writing that embodies two distinct but complementary convictions. On the one hand, that humanistic thinking has relevance for contemporary life, and on the other, that our lives are full of experiences worth thinking about. The Point adheres to no specific political or social agenda, Instead, they invite readers to participate in a dialogue between diverse intellectual traditions, personalities, and points of view. The goal is a society where the examined life is not an abstract ideal, but an everyday practice. Finally, as always, I would like to thank the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America for underwriting and supporting this podcast. 
The IHE is the nation's leading academic institute committed to increasing scientific understanding of the economic, cultural, and social conditions vital for human flourishing. To learn more about the IHE and the wonderful work they are doing, please visit their website, ihe.catholic.edu. And with all that housekeeping out of the way, I am pleased to get to episode 51 of the podcast, which is a conversation among friends about art and music with two friends of mine who also happen to be Dominican friars and members of a bluegrass band called the Hillbilly Thomas. As always, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. Today's episode is a little bit different because instead of centering a conversation around literary art and theology, we are going to be talking about music. And more specifically, we're going to be chatting about bluegrass music with a couple of bluegrass band members uh, from a band that's a little bit different than you might expect Of course, I'm talking about the Hillbilly Thomas, who just released their third album, Holy Ghost Power. And joining me this morning are two members of the band, both of whom are Dominican friars. I've got Father Thomas Joseph White, who is currently the Rector Magnificus at the Angelicum in Rome, and Father Jonah Teller, who is a Dominican friar at the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C. And most importantly, he's a fellow Buckeye and a Cincinnatian. So welcome to the podcast, fathers. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much, Jennifer. Great to be on. Yeah, so I'm excited. Like I said, this is kind of different for me. And eventually I want to get to big general philosophical topics like music and beauty and God. But I just want to start with more particular basic things And the place that I want to start, since we're talking about hillbilly music, is our hillbilly credentials. So I have some serious hillbilly credentials. I'm basically hillbilly on both sides. So my paternal grandparents were good country people from West Virginia. My grandfather via northern Italy, but still very West Virginia. And then on my maternal side, eastern Kentucky, tobacco farmers, very kind of hard-living people. So I grew up going to West Virginia and Kentucky all the time. Lots of childhood memories of being on that tobacco farm where there was a spittoon in almost every room. Um, (laughs) And like flinging tobacco spit across a room into a spittoon was like, I thought, a totally normal thing that people did. And Turns out it's not. But anyway. So how old were you when you started chewing tobacco? (laughs) Yeah. No, basically when I was born. Yeah. So so anyway, I'm a hillbilly um, and I like hillbilly music. So are y'all hillbillies as well? What what are hillbilly? You go for it. I'm an aspiring hillbilly. I mean, I, I grew up, I grew up in Southeast Georgia, not that far away from Milledgeville where uh, Flannery O'Connor first talked about hillbilly tomism, and my grandparents lived in Knoxville. So when I went up to visit them, uh, we would listen to the AM stations and and hear bluegrass music and old time country music, which um, was more readily available in the Appalachian region. Okay, so you grew up around hillbillies and listening to hillbilly music. I think that counts, uh, Father Jonah. I mean, my guess is that I'm probably considered closer to a hillbilly uh, by much of the world, given the fact that I was homeschooled and grew up on several acres of woods, primarily. So uh, at least puts me on the more fringy parts of the world. A lot of music in the house, played a lot of guitar, got more into sort of Irish folk at first, but uh, branched out into more properly hillbilly speaking terrain uh, as I got older. Like in college? You went to UD, yeah, right? But, yeah. You know, and the other thing is Jonah. Jonah's from right. Yeah, and Jonah's from Cincinnati. So you know, Cincinnati might not be thought of as southern, but it's across the river from Kentucky. And there's a really good bluegrass scene, 
and a folk music scene uh, yeah, in so Cincinnati. Is your, is your family on there. of Appalachian descent? Because a lot of people in that area, that's true. Well, my dad's uh, from a Jewish family, so like Eastern European. And then my mom is Irish. So, no. <laughs> but, no, but okay. <laughs> Got it. Um, yeah, well, I mean, the town that I'm from, Hamilton, is called affectionately Hamiltucky because basically everyone sure has, roots, has roots in Kentucky. So, And Hamilton is about an eight-minute drive from Middletown. And the only reason anyone in this country has now heard about Middletown, Ohio, is because of J.D. Vance's book. And that, of course, is where J.D. Vance is from. And the book, of course, is Hillbilly Elegy. So we're all a little bit hillbilly. I want to talk, before we talk about hillbilly music and why, why you like hillbilly music, I just want to take a step back and talk about the Dominican order because not all of my listeners know what that is. Sometimes when I say I hang around Dominicans, people think I'm talking about people from the Dominican Republic. <laughs> so maybe you could explain very briefly what the Dominican order is and also the role that philosophy, theology, and music play in the life of a Dominican. Anybody can take that question. So the Dominican order is an order founded 800 years ago in the around 1216, 1217 by St. Dominic Guzman, who was a Spaniard. Uh, and it was an order of mendicants uh, like the Franciscans and the Carmelites. That's to say they lived off of gifts. And they did that in order to, unlike the, on the monastic movements, not be located in a specific monastery where they had to work the land and to make themselves available for full-time preaching and ministry and service to the larger international church. So the Dominicans, like the Franciscans, were this kind of medieval movement of preaching and teaching, and they specialized particularly in theological philosophical research. The most famous early Dominican figure is Thomas Aquinas, but of, he was taught by Albert the Great. So there's this old intellectual legacy that's been maintained in the order for 800 years and then flourished in all kinds of other kinds of study like modern biblical studies, historical studies, a lot of uh, work on science and religion, the modern sciences as they relate to philosophical understandings of the cosmos and religious views of the world. So it's a, it's a you know, there's a lot of um, testimony to the intellectual aspirations of Catholic Christianity in the Dominican order. And then in terms of music, it's a quasi-monastic order. So though we do not live in monasteries, we do live in priories, and we move from priory to priory every few years. A lot of them are near educational centers, or they are educational centers. But we pray the psalms together like monks do. As friars, we pray together like four or five times a day, depending on the particular priory, psalmody, Gregorian chant, sung mass, that kind of thing. So corporate prayer and common uh, singing is a part of our life. Do you want to add anything to that, Father Jonah? That's pretty well said. Um, no. Yeah, so so you sing when you pray, but that is, of course, sacred music. Is there any particular role for profane music in the Dominican yes, Right. Sure. Well, you step outside of a chapel, uh, yeah, then you're, you've got all the room in the world for profane music, if you like. And that's more or less how we started playing our music together. There were a bunch of student brothers who ended up at the Dominican House of Studies, which is our center for studies in this part of the order in the world. And uh, we all like playing music as a way just to, to hang out. And it turns out that friars do, in fact, hang out every now and then. And so when we would do that, we would often just be playing music. And so um, we didn't play Gregorian chant to hang out. I mean, that's beautiful, but that's beautiful in a church. Uh, you know, you don't sit around a campfire and you don't, uh, you know, intone in omnem terram or anything like that. Uh, you grab a guitar and a fiddle. Yeah. So, I mean, you're hanging out uh, possibly around a proverbial campfire and like, but how, I guess, even though you're not in formal prayer, there's surely some kind of spiritual aspect to that. Yeah. Or no. Oh, sure. Without a doubt. Um, I mean, you're, you're, Hopefully your music is expressing something that's true, 
And uh, the truth is going to put you in touch with the spiritual, uh, whether you think about it or not. And uh, that you want all of your life to cohere. And I think it naturally does that. It's not something we sort of sat down and said, well, before we play this music, we really need to make sure that it's spiritual and that it really you know, makes sense with our life. No, you just did it because it's part of our life that was delightful and it naturally uh, fit in. At least we think it fits in. I was going to say, you bring your whole personality to what you do. So uh, a lot of the guys in this band uh, were previously professional level musicians or highly qualified amateur musicians. So when they started playing together, they could do things at a very high level. And they, you know, when you tap into Irish classical, Irish folk music or classical bluegrass music or Americana folk music, and you're a religious person training for the priesthood, you will reach into those themes that are interestingly maybe religious or tragic or comic, but that connote a kind of depth of life because you have a, you know, a philosophical uh, bone or two in your body. And you also want to entertain people with a sense of gravitas and humor. So, you know, you choose musical forms that are really rich, not, not superficial. Do you think that the Dominican order attracts a certain type, like somebody who's, who's likely to be musical or no, just a happy accident? Well, I don't know that it necessarily, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of more, we have a lot uh, of intellectuals play the desk than they play the piano, <clears throat> but, um, you, uh, certainly what, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's uh, what we're kind of dancing of around. Yeah. It's, it's a very nerdy order. Um, of course, neither Father Thomas Joseph nor yeah. I are nerds. We would never, yeah, a lot of know, nerds. never claim that. Uh, no. no. Yeah. We're, we're the Rector totally Magnificus well of the Angelicum people. is not a nerd. But, 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 looks, uh, I, no, but, um, oh, he's, no, he's very a highly well adjusted. functional, emotionally so, balanced. But uh, as far as the question about music, um, I mean, you do, yeah. by virtue of the times of prayer, you spend at least a couple hours each day singing or chanting. So, your average Dominican is at least comfortable with a melody. He might not be able to sing that melody, but he's comfortable with it. And um, so I think that we're much more musical than the average person might be because we just, I mean, what other kind of person sings a couple hours every day? So at least the idea of that is not strange. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. And um, I mean, I want to go back to something that you said about music communicating truth. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting to me because I have been writing a lot about art sort of just philosophically lately and kind of wrote a stupid little manifesto on art that drew very heavily on Flannery O'Connor. And what's interesting to me about Flannery's essays on art and the nature of art, and she's kind of focusing on literature, but she also makes it clear that what she would, what she is saying extends more broadly to art as a whole. And she mentions truth like 40 times in her writings on art. And she says the basis of art is truth. And she only mentions beauty twice. And it's really striking to me that this is the case. And I'm, I'm inclined to think that she's right, that the basis of art is truth. But it also seems like beauty has to be, has to be in there too, I mean, I'm I'm kind of wondering, uh, I don't know. It's, that didn't really take the form of a question, so let me make mm-hmm. it into the form of a question. If the goal of music is to communicate truth, does it need to do so beautifully? Or how does that really, how does that work out theologically? It, it has to do so beautifully. It's There's such a thing as ugly music, and we don't want to do that. So, I mean, I think it, it also, music is is temporal. That's a key thing to understanding it. So it's not just melodious or harmonious and, in that sense, aesthetic, proportionate, and beautiful. It's also temporal. And so it's about negotiating your time in life or your life in time because thinking about harmonies and proportions through time, and it's also thinking about stories. I mean, music usually connotes some kind of narrative, at least if there are words. There's almost always some kind of narrative and so you're coming from somewhere and you're going somewhere and you're thinking about your emotional life as well as your spiritual aspirations. Emotions are involved in music. They touch upon our passions. That's 
Plato's you know initial insight. It's indisputable. So you've got the negotiation of your temporal experience of your passions. You've got a story of your life or the life of another, and you've got some kind of experience of beauty and harmony and proportion, and you're putting that together. You know, so it can be deep or it can be, it can be more superficial. It could be a short story about your passions or it could be a deeper spiritual story about your, mm-hmm. your pilgrimage. I, so we're thinking more about truth. And I'm kind of shooting from the hip here, so I'll probably get corrected, which is fine. I hope I am if I'm wrong. And so art is a lot about um, representing nature. So it's going to require a certain amount of accuracy in what it does. Um, think more about music particularly, I think there can be sincere music and there can be true music. So uh, you hear a lot of songs today, perhaps like, you know, I was going to say on the radio, but how many people listen to the radio anymore? But uh, you, you might hear a lot of songs that are sincere, but not necessarily true. So there will be a certain resonance in that they they reflect something accurate about a person's experience, but they might not be in fact true. But a song that is both sincere and true is going to land with a lot more power behind it as well even though you know a sincere song as i'm defining it would also have a certain amount of power but can only take you so far i don't know what you think about that i think that's really i I think that's very insightful i mean that's really insightful because a sincere song expresses existential sincerity or existential uh um conviction but it doesn't necessarily register as to what is most poignant or profound in the human experience it's where a deeper music and, and we're not talking about genres of classical or, you know, um, opera, operatic or, you know, popular contemporary. But the, the pr- more profound the song, the more it's going to actually reflect something of the human experience. That, that, yeah, that actually, I am forced to listen to the radio because of my toddler, <laughs> um, okay. who very early on became addicted to literally the worst radio station. It's like top 40 hits. And uh, how did your toddler become addicted to that radio station? Uh, well, okay, long story, but I'm sure it has to do with my neglect. But anyway, um, yeah, and I, I like the point about sincerity because, of course, most music that is directed towards young people is very superficial and shallow, but sort of very sincere. So you can think about like Olivia Rodriguez, and it's just sort of like, you know, she's so mad at her boyfriend in every song. Mm-hmm. And it's totally and insufferable. I know. It's yeah. very sincere. And it's super catchy. Like, these songs, they're like brain worms. They just get stuck in your head and you can't get rid of them. Um, but, of course, they're also, like, extremely superficial and you just want to pull her aside and make her read something. At any rate, okay, so... Music has a role in the life of a Dominican that makes sense to me, but hillbilly music. Uh, Why hillbilly music? Because you might think, one, hillbilly music's Protestant. (laughs) Two, hillbilly music is profane. Three, hillbilly music is just sort of not intellectual or not, uh, not in the right register. So why hillbilly music? Well, Father Thomas Joseph started it, so we just stole the name. So he has to answer this question. Look, I mean, I think in American folk music and bluegrass music, which is kind of our two streams of influence, we take some stuff also from the blues and from Irish music. They're in all these forms, okay? Bluegrass, American and great American folk Americana traditions, Irish music and, and African American blues music. There's a whole dimension of religious re- reflection. And it can be, it's not overly pious or saccharine or artificial. There's a kind of a grittiness to a lot like for example a lot of bluegrass religious music has poignancy to it the tragic is allowed to be acknowledged uh, as well as hope in god so there's a lot of older kind of uh, beauty in the american musical tradition that now gets ignored because of as you allude to pop superficialization but also like vapid, narrow-minded, artistic secularization. I mean, secularization of the arts where this stuff's just not allowed to appear. So if you're a Catholic priest and you're doing this for fun, there's a kind of wonderful irony or playfulness in going back and reappropriating a lot of this older pre-Catholic, older American um, musical tradition. I mean, just someone like Johnny Cash even has like awesome religious songs, which are not ironic, 
but are really cool. And so it's fun to, you know, both um, play and imitate some of that kind of music. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'll also say we were actually uh, just up in Cleveland. We wrapped up a tour. That was our la- the last place we played a show. Um, I say that like we go on tour on the time. It was the first tour we've ever done and might be the only one. Who knows? But we all, we all went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, I mean, going through some of the exhibits, you see, like, spiritual music is at the roots of a lot of American music. Now, obviously, American music might look substantially different from spiritual music now, but there is a lot of gospel at the heart of it. And, um, you know, whether it's coming from a Protestant source or not, I mean, the gospel is still the gospel. I mean, you might disagree about what it means, but the original source is still there. So it it felt somewhat natural, I think, just to gravitate towards that and that there is still a real deep faith today in the, like the bluegrass world and the, the folk music world to some extent. But, um, I mean, you talk to a lot of uh, serious bluegrass or folk players and they're going to have uh, spiritual themes running through their music very clearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, is a fair way to describe what y'all are trying to do is kind of like do hillbilly music, but make it Catholic. Honestly, are are you just doing hillbilly music? Honestly, I don't know if it's either of those things. I think we're not, we're not trying to do anything. We're just playing music because we, we love playing music. And it turned out that other people, at least some other people, liked listening to the music we made. And so the genre we have is a very strange one. I mean, it has some, like, there's some real rootsy bluegrass stuff. There's some Delta Delta blues. There's some New Orleans jazz. There's some rockabilly. Uh, a lot of it just kind of reflects, like, what we we ourselves as a group, the different friars with all the different influences that we're coming from, the music we love to play, what delights us. Um so I don't know if we ever sat down and draw up a, drew up a charter as to what we were aiming to do. Father Thomas Joseph? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, in a certain way, it's not, it's not serious enough that we have like some kind of ideological agenda. And on another <laughs> level, artistically, it's too serious that we would want it to be affected by an ideological agenda. I mean, we're, we're just trying to play, we play music for fun, and it started off that way, and then it's, got, it's you have know, done three albums. The Hillbilly Thomas just came out with a third album called Holy Ghost Power. And uh, what we discovered just in touring six cities in the Midwest is there's like a small but but very visible cult following of the band. And they just love the music, you know. So we, we just like performing the music. It's not, it's not a, um, I, I don't know if there's, I don't know if the creative horizon goes beyond the, the, the kind of mystery of self-expression and artistic uh, experimentation. But we like playing the music, and I think the band has gotten pretty good, you know, just in terms of technical. There's some people with amazing, amazing musical talent in the band, and the band's acquired a kind of integral totality where we can play together really well. Seven people, many instruments, it's pretty difficult, lots of harmonies, um, very fast stuff. Mm. Integral totality. We are not nerds. Yeah. (laughs) Please stop denigrating nerds. Uh, <laughs> this is a podcast for nerds. Uh, okay, well, let me ask about your cult following. Like, is it mostly Catholics, or are there just like real bluegrass it's mostly, people? Who it's mostly the Catholics. It's a lot of Catholic families. We it's a it's a band that both young children and their parents agree to like together. So it's it's like played in. I'm guessing it's played in the minivan between places because we have lots of both young adults and their kids who sing to the lyrics to all the songs. Um, there are non-Catholics who follow the band. Absolutely. There are a lot of non-Catholics who follow the band. Yeah, yeah. We, were, um, we were vacationing in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and we were driving along the Blue Ridge Parkway outside of Asheville, and it was me, my brother, and I don't know, 11 or 12 kids. I lost count. But yeah, we were playing the Hillbilly Thomas. And, you know, the age range was from like 16 to four. And yeah, everybody loved it. So, but sorry, cool. we couldn't, we could not make your, your tour. Uh, but you played the Grand Old Opry. We did. That's kind we of We did. Amazing. It was awesome. That was cool. Yeah. Oh, how man. did that come to be? I was, I was impressed. Totally, but, totally unmerited. It was great. Yeah. How did that Just come like to Grace. be and how did that go? 
Well, the Knights of Columbus had their annual convention this year in Nashville, and they asked us, because we do have this kind of Catholic following, and the Dominicans are also, they work a fair amount with the Knights of Columbus in New Haven, Connecticut. They asked us to be the opening show. There was Craig Morgan, who's a more well-known country, big country music guy, played after us. But So we did a half-hour set. You know, I think we were all a little amazed at the experience of going into the back of the artist's entrance and being treated incredibly professionally and graciously by the amazing, amazing staff at the Grand Ole Opry, being put in a green room that's, you know, a place where stars wait, and these beautiful green rooms, you know, with all this memorabilia of all the stars who played the Opry, and going out on that stage and working with the sound crew who were of the utmost professional expertise, and then playing our music, first empty in the Opry, you know, to this huge auditorium, and, you know, booming out the songs that we sing together and then later playing for, you know, a, a thousands of people in there. Um, that was just a really interesting experience of, you know, professional music on one of the great stages of American music, of, of music in the world. Uh, it's a great honor to do it. We, we loved it. It was. It was, it was so awesome. Uh, there's a cer- in the middle of the stage of the Opry, there's this... Uh, maybe six foot diameter circle of very old wood. Um, and it's the floor of the original Ryman uh, venue that they placed there when they built that stage. And so, you know, we were talking to one of the sound guys and he said, yeah, so, you know, this, the saying is like Hank Williams's dust is on that, that wood too. Like everybody who's anyone in the bluegrass or country music world has stood there. And then, you know, totally, totally undeservedly, we got to stand there and play. And it was really from the first, the first few seconds of sound check, you just knew this place was a special acoustic place. Uh, the sound was incredible. The, the, the whole crew was really just phenomenal. It was, it was an awesome experience. So was it recorded? Yes, but we don't know if it's going to be made public. Yeah. We don't know if it's public, but, but they did record it. You know, uh, the quality of the recording was was probably high, but not as I don't think it's as high as the as the quality of the songs on the album. You know, in terms of the the production value. But what was recorded though was uh, we also did a, a, an interview with a a show called Tokens. Um, it's on the local NPR station. This guy reached out to us. He does a sort of like theological philosophical variety hour every Sunday. I think on the NPR station there. So we went in and did like an hour of interview and played about five songs at this studio where Will the Circle Be Unbroken was recorded. And that was also an awesome experience. And that was yeah, recorded. So we, should, we could track that down if you want. Yeah, that's awesome. You should. I mean, you should get like a bootlegging kind of hillbilly Thomas sort of thing going um, where people can be swapping well, I don't know. And the I guess it doesn't really work in the on the dark the web. Streaming. On the dark web. Getting the cassettes in a big yeah. way. Make those, yeah. Yeah. Make those Yeah, somebody yeah. can we send should, me an MP three. We should make those eleven year old <laughs> kids out there who are big fans of the band trade their allowance for, you know, the, the bootleg copies of a of the Grand Old Opry show. That's it's right. A whole, that's a that's whole right. unexplored yeah. market economy. No. I think so. You know, it's like um the way people used to do with Grateful Dead cassettes or something. But what would you call, what would your equivalent of deadhead be? What are hillbilly mm, chomheads? a good question. Like what, what are you going to call your super fans? Well, there are actually. Thomas. Yeah, they could be that. just hillbilly Thomists. <laughs> I mean. One of the reasons why I kept pressing about what your aims were with the band is that I assume, perhaps wrongly, that you need permission from the order to do this. Is that not true? It's more or less true. Well, it's certainly yeah. true. We have I jobs. don't want to let too long a pause go. Otherwise, that would get dangerous. No, it's We true. have jobs. We have to get yeah. away from our jobs yeah, so for like two had, weeks yeah, to we do this. To get, yeah, people have to not think we're just completely irresponsible. So, yeah, we have to like check, clear this. And, and it's fine? Everybody's super supportive? Well, I'll put it this way. Um, the prior provincial of our province at the time, when we recorded our second album, um, when we record, well, no, when we were recording the third album, the most recent one, he's on the album. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Nice. He came up and he he, uh, he whacked a cowbell for a few seconds, and we we made it work. Oh, that's amazing. Um, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I I want to. I I'm just putting in a request at some point to like bang a cymbal 
on some song at some point. Um, okay. Duly okay. noted. Yeah. Um, all right. So I guess one of the reasons that I was wondering if you had to get permission is I was wondering if the hillbilly Thomas are kind of sui generis or whether or not there's sort of like a tradition of Dominicans forming bands. No, we're definitely, well, we're definitely touring. the only hill, uh, only bluegrass Americana folk band in the Dominican order currently. I want to go on record and make that. No, I, I actually, I think there are some sisters in Nashville and some of the other congregations who play a little bit of folk music together. I'm not sure they've recorded anything. There were, there were men in our province like a hundred years ago in Washington who had a kind of folk music band somehow. But let's just let's just acknowledge that disciples of Thomas Aquinas wearing medieval regalia, living in a 800-year-old religious order, and playing modern American bluegrass music and so forth. That's it's an eccentricity. Yeah, there's a there's a Franciscan friar of the Renewal named Father Isaiah. He was just ordained. He's got a a pretty good musical following. He's a great musician. He plays a slightly different, more a different style than we do, but he's a, you know, Dominicans and Franciscans have been united for a long time. We were founded around the same time. So it's, we just want to acknowledge him. He's, he does great work as well up in New York city. Yeah. So isn't there some kind of lineage or some kind of history of the Dominican order in the United States in kind of Appalachia? Like, am I, am I right that the first, the first priory was in Kentucky, or am I making that up? Yeah, that's right. We started in Kentucky, and then we moved into Ohio. And basically, all the churches in Kentucky and Ohio from about 1805 to around, I don't know what, maybe 1830 or so, almost every church, not all, but almost every one was the Dominican Foundation. And is there any, like, evidence that those early Dominicans were, like— Musical. In any way, yeah, getting involved with like, let's just call it Appalachian music. Well, I mean, I don't know about the very first ones, but we do have some very old pictures of friars with all kinds of stringed instruments. It's actually the cover of our very first album is this inexplicable picture of like, I don't know, 15 or 16 friars with like every kind of banjo and mandolin and guitar and fiddle. And I I have no idea what that picture is about or what led to it. I would love to know the backstory to it, but um, it's at least there is photographic proof that people were doing music in some way like this uh, some time ago in the province. Mm-hmm. Well, Father Thomas Joseph, you're in Rome. What do the Italians make of your band? <laughs> I think they think it's strange. I think they think it's eccentric. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, you know, now this, you know, one thing about the banjo is it's not a European originate instrument. Like unlike a lot of the other, all the other instruments in most bluegrass music, for example, it's, uh, you know, derivative from Europe. But the banjo, which I play, is, you know, probably a descendant of an African gourd instrument that then evolved in 19th century Virginia into this complex metal with a drum head, guitar-like, open G-tuning technical instrument, which you cannot play and chew gum at the same time because it's pretty difficult. And I'm pretty sure the, the you know, I, when I'm in the office playing, that the staff who hear it, unfortunately, I don't intend this, but I think they do hear it down the hall because, of course, it's a resonant instrument. I think they do think it's, um, you know, odd that uh, the president of the university is playing the banjo, but I don't think they, I don't think they think I'm a, uh, I don't think they think I'm a worse person for it. You know, I think they they, probably delight in it a little bit because it, uh, it confirms a lot of suspicions about Americans. Well, wait, wait, hold up, hold up. Well, what would those suspicions be? And are, are you denying that banjo music is beautiful? Because if it's beautiful, it will attract. Well, I'll just, as far as banjo music being beautiful, I'll just say I'll appeal to authority. Dave Rawlings, one of the greatest musicians living right now. I went to see him at a concert once and, and he said he was tuning his banjo or somebody was tuning a banjo. And he, he said, well, I don't really know if you can tune a banjo. It just kind of makes it sound more banjo-y. So I don't know if the, the banjo is particularly a, a beautiful instrument. It has beauty certainly to it, um, but it's, it's not a, no, it's not a fluid beautiful. grace or it's beauty. A, it's a superior <laughs> No, like in the hierarchy, in the Dionysian hierarchy of being, the banjo ranks very high as a distributing 
uh, instrument of beauty. Maybe in the same uh, no, sense look, you might say that like a harsh bourbon me, is beautiful. The sound of a banjo is also beautiful. Yeah, more in its effects. Well, they're both in their effects. But so, you know, the cleaning lady who uh, sometimes hears me has has definitely stated, and she's very Italian, and she's definitely stated that she thinks the banjo is magnificent. So, yeah, it has universal, you know, a universal uh, c- capacity to be received. But, but uh, I mean, it's not in their musical tradition, so it's uh, alien. You know, it's a acquired taste. Do you play at the Angelicum? Like, do you, like, will you play, Every like, day. a little concert? Yeah, but I mean, like, not in private, like, public. Well, you know, this is a kind of music where it, it, I can play things that are reasonably interesting alone, but uh, when you're playing with seven people, it gets so much more rich and full when you're playing all together. And so I always feel a little bit of uh, disappointment or the result is less engaging when you're only one person however yes i play individual concerts for people from time to time i don't put on big events i'm i'm a bit gun shy about uh you know solo performing i'm not that into into it but i but i like the creative process um I, you know and as jonah knows quite well i prefer recording songs to no, playing i was about to say music that yeah you're a recorder recording, yeah the recording process is yeah recording process for me is just fascinating i love all the the layering and and working together with other people to create a song that's really sophisticated or at least, you know, musically complicated. Sounds like a nerd. <laughs> yeah, I'm an introvert. Yeah. yeah nice. I mean, you're he the dodges one the question. Doing a that's show cool. about philosophy and theology. Yeah, talking yeah. to two like, strange no, celibates over here. I am, a, I am a super proud nerd. Anyway, um, so who writes the songs? Does everybody write songs in the Hillbilly Thomas? Father Thomas Joseph writes songs. And Father Justin Bolger, those are the two who I would say write the bulk of our songs. Father Timothy Danaher uh, wrote a couple songs for our last albums. Those have been received quite well. But until that point, Father Justin and Father Thomas Joseph have been the main ones. I've been working on a song for a couple of years now. I think that by our sixth or seventh album, it should be you know almost ready to go. And uh, I think Father, <laughs> Father Peter's got a, a few songs. He's one of the brilliant musician people. He's just like a phenomenal musician. He plays... Uh, guitar, the dobro, slide guitar, the piano, the harmonica, the mandolin, the bass. I mean, you name it, he can play it. Um, he's got a whole bunch of really interesting chord progressions and melodies that we need to set words to. So, But uh, that's a long way of saying that now there are like two and kind of three people who write our songs mostly. Who wrote Heaven or Tennessee? I love that song. Oh, thank you. I wrote that, yeah. Yeah, that's a great song. I, I really love that one. Sometimes I feel like I know the songs that you write, but that one I, I actually thought maybe Father Jonah wrote that song. Oh, thank you. I sing I, it. I, I write all I the crazy write. songs. Well, he did sing it. He did yeah, a great I know. Job that's why I thought. So, I thought, t- why, why, what, did you, what do you like about that song? I mean, I'm not, this yeah, is what's not, to I'm like? not seeing compliments. Let's, you know, you're, you're a serious thinking person. Let's analyze <laughs> yeah, this. I mean, you're, I mean, you're a nerd. So, so what what, why do song. you like that song? Uh, one, I love, yeah. ten- I love Tennessee. I've, I mean, I've been hiking the mountains in Tennessee since I was a child, and I drag my children out there at least once a year. It's a funny song. It actually has some lines of, like, incredibly deep wisdom. It's just a beautiful song. I, lo- I love every aspect of it. And I, I love the singing. Some great singing. Oh, on thank you. Thank you. You didn't need to say that at all. Um. <laughs> But of course, I, I also I I think your new album Holy Ghost Power is is my favorite. Uh, like I think every album is better than the album before, and I thought the second album was fantastic. So, uh, so yeah, I was like impressed <laughs> that the third album was better. Is it? I mean, is it like the same friars every album, or do like the members of the band switch out? Yeah, it's the same. Okay. It's well we had we got our we didn't have our fiddle player for the second album so we put a lot more resonator guitar on that album and then we had the fiddle player back uh he showed up with a vengeance in the third album and so he's there's a lot more mm-hmm. uh and that changes the composition but you know when you come together after a year and you do music again you get better everybody in the band's gotten better musically and then you learn to listen to each other and then you you get a little bolder about what you're willing to try to do because you're you have you build on prior experience. I, I really liked the second album. I thought it was 
I, I can't believe we, I couldn't believe we recorded all that in ten days. Um, but I thought the third album was more complicated in 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 a good way. You know, we 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 could do things in the third album we couldn't do in the second. Yeah, album. I mean, my hope is also that we can. You know, the band the band will grow and change probably as the years go on. I say that mostly because uh, I kind of, along with a few other friars, sort of door crashed the band that Father Thomas Joseph had started. I mean, he founded the band with Father Austin Litke some years ago, and then you know, a whole bunch of idiots showed up at the House of Studies and started playing music and heard Hillboy Thomas. Oh, that's a cool name. We'll just take it. And they were extremely gracious about the fact that we more or less brazenly like took their name. Yeah, no, they weren't idiots. They were much more. They're much more talented. They were much more talented than we are. I mean, they raised the whole bar of the band. That's what so, happened. But that's all to say, like there are also some really talented uh, brothers in formation right now. So if they ever want to come, uh, you know, play with us too. Actually, one of them did play with us in New York City. That was great. We had a we needed a banjo player because Father Thomas Joseph couldn't, and so Brother Thomas stepped up, and he was great. So what what's in store in the future for the Hillbilly Thomas? Like what what does the next three years look like? Well, we're going to try to record another album. We hope we're not making any promises, but we're going to try to do another album next August, a year from now. And uh, of course, we have to play the Ryman Theater. We don't know how. Uh, we hope it won't involve any kind of you know um, illegal activity like taking over the Ryman with armed weapons and taking the sound crew hostage just long enough to play before we get arrested so that we can say we played the Ryman Theater in Nashville. Um, be a good story, We though. hope there'll be it a would. gentler way, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, it would be, it would definitely, you know, add to the concentric circles of eccentricity. It would. Um, but, uh, the, yeah, we, we, we want to keep those six-year-olds happy out there, you know, and we don't want their parents to have to listen to the third album more than a thousand times in the car. Right. So we have to keep producing music. Right. So how can people find the Hillbilly Thomas online? How can they purchase your albums? How can they support your work? Well, you can go to hillbillythomas.com. Surprisingly, that domain was not claimed when we went looking for it. Um, so there's that. But now we're on, we're on Spotify. We're on Apple Music. We're on YouTube. Uh, you can buy our CDs um, on Amazon, you can also buy it from New Hope Press in Kentucky. We hope you do that instead of Amazon. But they're available there on Amazon Music for download. Um, all the standard places you go looking for real person music, you will find our music as well. We're verified at this point. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, we're verified artists on Spotify. Uh, it's close to bon- bona fide. Almost we're like bona fide. verified. Yeah. It's almost like bona fide. I mean, you've played the Grand Old Opry, so. Yeah. I can die now. Seems like you might get a blue check for that. Uh, Okay, so we're out of time. Any last thoughts before we go about any of it? Gosh, I mean, I hope people keep liking it as much as we like playing it. We're grateful to the fans. We're grateful to you for having us on. And we're, you know, we're really genuinely grateful to the goodness of divine providence that we could take what was a kind of a, a evening hobby and make something kind of professional out of it that's that's delightful fantastic all right well thanks for coming on sure thank you jennifer thank you jennifer i want to go home and see my savior i want to go far and see my family i want to hear angels sing in the midnight sunlight I want to go to heaven or to Tennessee Gonna trade my revolutions for revelation Trade my electric guitar for wise blood Trade my Yankee tailor for a southern trailer You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy, theology, and literature podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by Catholics for Hire, a group of young Catholic digital content freelancers. Special thanks goes to William Dethridge, Anthony Monson, and Bay Kause for their work in editing and producing this podcast. 
If you enjoy this podcast and quite generally want to support the project of reconnecting knowledge and virtue, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can go to www.patreon.com slash eudaimoniapod to become a monthly patron. Our patrons enjoy many benefits like tote bags and coffee mugs with exclusive sacred and profane love artwork and free digital subscriptions to either the lamp or the point magazines. And please don't forget to give us a positive review on iTunes to help us curry favor with our algorithmic overlords. And also don't forget to tell your friends and family that they should definitely check us out. For our next episode, I will be joined by the award-winning poet and biographer Paul Mariani to discuss the life and poetry of Robert Lowell. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading. Tennessee.